Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. Hello to everybody who's at home watching online in their PJs. I wore my PJs to work on Friday. Pretended to oversleep for April Fool's Day, but uh, we're glad you're here. Join me for a short prayer to open up. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And Jesus, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in this very room this morning. And we just ask that you would help us to put away our distractions, to just cut off the rest of the world for this brief period of time as we focus on your word and what you would have it to do in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This morning, we began a series focusing on some of the important things Jesus said called the red letters. Now, many of you own Bibles with the words of Jesus printed in red. I was reading from one this morning. Red letter Bibles have become so common that it's easy to think or assume that they've been around for as long as Bibles have been printed, but that's not the case. According to crossway.org, The first red-letter Bible was published in 1901. The idea of printing the words of Christ in red originated with a man named Louis Klopsch. He was editor of Christian Herald magazine, and in his 18 years of being the the head of that publication, he raised more than $3 billion for relief throughout the world. Keep in mind, this was in the 1800s, early 1900s. That's when a billion dollars was really something. No cause was closer, dearer to his heart than that of scripture distribution and reading. And through Christian Herald, his magazine, he published more than 60,000 Bibles and New Testaments a year for most of his tenure. But he wanted to do more than get the Bible into people's hands. He wanted people to read the Bible and understand it 
especially what it says about Jesus Christ. His idea of highlighting the words of Jesus to make them easier to spot, to stand out from the rest, really caught on. And he actually came up with the idea of printing all of Jesus' words in red, the color of his blood, when reading Jesus' words in Luke 22, 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Perfectly timed, today we will be doing communion at the end of service. And I ask that as we go through this message that you prepare your heart for that sacrament of the church. Now there are a couple of reasons I can't tell you exactly how long this series will run. Uh, First, none of us are certain of the exact details of our teaching schedule here at New Covenant for the next few months with Pastor Dave's resignation, the leadership team doing their best to bring you quality messages each week. And we've been blessed with some terrific guest speakers. We plan on utilizing our own pastors and as well as guests in the, in the weeks to come until our next senior pastor is selected. Our executive pastor, David Atkins, our board of elders, myself and others, all working together to try to bring you a schedule of lessons and messages that we pray will enlighten, educate, and encourage all of us through God's word in the days to come. As for now, I'm scheduled to teach God willing, through a Sunday the 24th of this month. So please pray for all our leaders, our teachers, and our guest speakers as we navigate through this difficult but promising time. The second reason I'm uncertain of the length of the series called The Red Letters, Jesus Said, is because our Lord and Savior said a lot. He, he, he spoke in many different times, in many different ways and places to a huge variety of people and gatherings. He spoke to single individuals, very small groups of his closest followers, the religious leaders of the day, and massive crowds who gathered to see him and hear his words. Our world today is filled with serious problems. They range from the economy to the ecology, from politics to possible world war from divorce to deadly viruses and disease to depression so widespread it's turned into an epidemic of hopelessness and people taking their own lives but it strikes me that every single one of our most serious problems in the world today could be fixed by simply focusing on the things jesus had to say So for the foreseeable future, whenever I'm honored with the invitation, whenever I'm blessed to be invited to teach here at New Covenant, my focus is going to be on something important that Jesus said that is printed in your Bibles in red. Matthew 5, where we just read, is our starting point, and it's where we find the teaching of Jesus that most refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, mainly because Jesus went up on a hillside into the foothills on the side of a mountain to teach it. And almost all who study the Bible put tremendous significance on this very long and detailed sermon from the mountainside. Bible expert William McDonald says it's no accident it's placed near the beginning of the New Testament. He feels its position there indicates its extreme importance. 
Pastor and best-selling author Dallas Willard says, these words of Jesus have proven to be the most influential such teachings ever to emerge on the face of this planet. He continues, they are uniquely deep and powerful, among the most important of all literary treasures of the entire history of the world. Looked upon for 2,000 years by world leaders, great thinkers, and philosophers as a starting point for discussions about morality, even for those outside of Christianity, end quote. The Sermon on the Mount begins with an important passage that we just read, known as the Beatitudes. And that's an uncommon word. We don't really use it at all these days, except for referring to that section of the Bible. Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And we're all immediately pulled in by Jesus repeatedly using the word blessed. Now, it's important to know historically that the word blessed was not used back then like it is now. Today, we definitely overuse the word, especially in the Christian community. How you doing? I'm blessed. What was your vacation like? Oh, we were blessed with great weather. What's new with the kids? Well, as you know, they're blessed with their mother's beauty along with my amazing intelligence, so we feel very blessed, right? And I'm as guilty as anybody. I've, I've coined the phrase, I'm too blessed to be stressed, and I use it all the time, not because it's always necessarily true at the moment, but because it points me back to how I ought to be feeling, and it's just a, a sweet little rhyming reminder. Warren Wiersbe was a, a, a wonderful man. He passed from this world in 2019. He was a Bible teacher, a very prolific author, wrote over 80 Christian books, and I always enjoy his insight into scriptures. He wrote, imagine how the crowd's attention was riveted on Jesus when he uttered his first word of this long and thought-provoking message, blessed. This was a powerful word to those who were listening. To them, it meant divine joy and perfect happiness. The word was not used for humans then. It described the kind of joy experienced only by the gods or the dead. Blessed implied an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that did not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. End quote. As we work through this passage... We're going to find several attitudes that God desires that we should each want to be in our lives today. And I love the word, uh, the way the old word beatitude ties in with sort of sounds like our word attitude. And it's helpful for me to think of these scriptures known as the beatitudes as a description of beautiful attitudes. Now earlier I read them straight through the way Jesus spoke them. Now we're going to go through them more carefully one by one to hopefully gain a deeper richer understanding, not of just what Jesus said, but what he meant by what he said, as well as why he said it there at that certain time and place. Now, of course, humans being humans, there's constant disagreement within the church and out of what Jesus meant by what he said here. Over the centuries, there have been a lot of different teachings on this incredibly important passage. And there's actually a book that shows the contrast between 19 different theories and schools of thought on this one message. And we feel that some, at least several of them, are inaccurate 
and even harmful to the gospel. And we don't have time to, to get into that kind of a deep study of all the varieties and details, but we can confidently make a couple of points. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus presented was not his plan for salvation. It is not a list of how you must be to know God or to be blessed by God. It is meant for all who follow Jesus as Savior, past, present, and future. It had direct application back then on that very day, and it does apply to all of us right now in this room this morning. But with all of that said, it's also not what a lot of people have been taught. As always, it's important to look not just at the text, but the context of the Scripture. The things that were happening around it when it was given. And, and to get the context of chapter four, we, uh, 5, we have to go back to the end of chapter 4, verse 23, where it says, Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria. Looked it up. It's 135 miles away from Jerusalem. And people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. Now we break away from Scripture. Well, I point out that it clearly says Jesus gathered his closest disciples around him and went up on the mountainside. But it's important to note that the crowds were also there. They basically followed him, paying attention. That's probably why Jesus went up on the mountainside in the first place, so he could be better seen and heard by those who were gathered right below him. And we know that for a fact, that the crowds were listening, and we get that by jumping ahead in this same passage, way to the end of Matthew 7, verse 28, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So let's go over these Beatitudes again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, excuse me for repeating that. We've obviously already gone over it, but be prepared. We'll go over it again 
today and probably again next week. It always cracks me up the way Christians complain about repetition. Did you know our pastor repeated a sermon this Sunday that he gave five years ago? Or, I've heard this same scripture every Easter since I was a child. So what? Why do you think we remember the words to stupid pop songs on the radio from 50 years ago? They come on a TV commercial decades later, and we know every word, every lyric, because it was repeated hundreds and hundreds of times, and it's stuck in our minds forever, thanks to repetition. And when we hear a catchy song, or watch a classic movie, or read an amazing book, once is not enough. We want to, need to hear it, see it, read it again and again. And I pray we will begin to change our attitude about repeating scriptures and important messages from God's Word starting today. Repetition helps us to permanently plant God's Word in our memory bank, and that's important because we have to be able to constantly and consistently remind ourselves of scripture to remember what we believe and why. And I'm as guilty as anybody of complaining about church repetition. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a pastor begin a message from a passage in the Bible that I think I know pretty well, and I automatically think, oh, no, I already know all about that passage, this story. I was hoping to hear something new. Well, guess what? If I listen with an open and inquisitive mind, I always do. The Holy Spirit unveils new things in new ways at new times from us listening to the same old scriptures over and over and over. So as time allows, let's go over each of these one by one. But before we do, can we admit something that's most likely true of both me and you? Don't some of these sound strange? Backwards, in reverse, they don't make sense to our, our human way of thinking they even sound like they would be outside of God's way of thinking and it's okay because they sounded weird back then too they seem in many ways to be the opposite qualities of what the world values and teaches us and matter of fact to most in the crowd they were stunning life-altering back then and even today they don't seem to make sense until we take a, a more careful look so let's go back through them again, reminding ourselves of some key points. Scripture never contradicts itself. God can't lie, never says anything that's untrue. Prophecy often says things that are applied on more than one level at more than one time. And the first beatitude, I think, is a perfect example. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, unfortunately, a number of Bible translations misquote the first part of this scripture. You may have one. I have one at home that I really like, but this is misquoted. They write, blessed are the poor. In Old Testament days, wealth and success in life were a sign of God's favor on someone. To be poor was to be looked down upon by society, to be thought of as someone who must be doing something, maybe a lot of things wrong. And it still is seen 
that way by many today, though we all know that's not often accurate. Yes, we can be poor through bad choices in our lifestyle, through alcohol or drug addiction, laziness, being unwilling to work, careless spending, lots of bad habits that can make us poor. But we also may become poor through circumstances in life that have nothing to do with our personal choices. We might have a severely ill child who requires constant, exorbitant medical care or become unable to work through an accident, a disability, or disease. We may have our wealth stolen from us or make an earnest, honest effort to succeed that just goes south due to any number of things that are beyond our control. To Jesus, simply being poor is not the cause for a blessing or a curse. Being poor is not a condition that is appalling to the Lord, nor is being poor appealing to the Lord. And it's not instruction on how to get a free ticket, free automatic passage into heaven. Jesus is not saying that we're better off being poor. It's about our attitude towards ourself. And I turn to a couple of Bible experts to help us understand this. Warren Wiersbe writes, most of us understand poor in spirit to mean to be humble, to have a correct estimate of ourselves. It's the opposite of the world's attitude of self-praise and self-assertion. It's an honest look at our human faults and shortfalls. William McDonald says we're poor in spirit when we acknowledge our own helplessness and rely on God's endless power. We sense our spiritual need and know it can be fed and supplied only in the Lord. For those who truly love Jesus, there is no requirement of spiritual self-sufficiency. No need for a sense of virtue or feeling great about what wonderful Christians we are. End quote. But beware, feeling that we have a great handle on everything in our faith or that we're absolutely right in God's sight is most likely a sign of personal pride which is a terrible sin and usually leads to many, many other sins. In his book, Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard repeatedly makes the point that while the attitudes and behaviors we just mentioned are worthwhile to strive for, to pursue, they can't possibly be the key to the kingdom of God because that would base getting into heaven on our personal good works. And we all know that salvation comes not through works, but through faith in Christ alone. So no matter how good or how poor we are, we can't possibly earn our way into paradise. Yet this simple verse about God blessing the poor in spirit teaches us so much if we look and pray. It all centers on those who were listening that day the sick, the outcast, the needy, those who had endured great sacrifice, inconvenience, and expense to travel great distances, 135 miles for some of them, walking, riding animals, bringing their little ones with them, the elderly, those who, who couldn't walk, to simply be touched by the Lord so they could be healed physically. 
They had no way of knowing. Jesus was there to do something much more powerful to heal them spiritually. Many of them knew nothing about God at all. They were truly poor in spirit. Jesus was using physical healing to draw them in, to teach about the availability of the kingdom of heaven to them, right then, right there, in the moment. And it had to have been mind-blowing because, generally speaking, these people were the outcasts, the frowned upon, the spat upon, the sat upon. Those who'd been told all their lives they weren't good enough to take a sacrifice to the temple or to sit in the teachings at the tabernacle, that their lifestyle or their job or their personal status made them dirty, unclean, even untouchable. They'd been told that God didn't care about them, didn't even want them near him. Now, don't forget that the religious, uh, religious re elite were also there mixed in with the crowd. News of the miraculous healings of Jesus spread like wildfire, and people from all levels of society, from all over that part of the world, flocked to find him. So some of the religious elite of the day were no doubt standing safely on the edges of the crowds, away from the great unwashed, so they didn't pollute themselves, but close enough to see and hear. And they were stunned that this man was offering the blessings of God to those who didn't deserve it, didn't meet their standards. But that's exactly what Jesus was doing. According to Messianic rabbi Russell Resnick, who, by the way, came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior here in New Mexico back in the 1970s in Taos, New Mexico, and is now world-renowned as a Christian teacher to the Jews. Jesus was teaching to both the pious and the polluted. Jesus met the people's desperate physical needs, as we read about in chapter 4. Then he spoke into their lives. He played show and tell with the crowd that was right there in front of him to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was there among them that very day, that they were indeed blessed because he was the Messiah and he loved them and cared about them. They were drawn to his heart for the hurting, simply sitting around listening to his words. They were being invited into the kingdom of God. Jesus was offering to bless them eternally if only they would believe in him. They truly wanted to believe, but they had trouble imagining it could be true. Dallas Willard again, he describes them as people the world and they themselves looked at as spiritual zeros, spiritually bankrupt, deprived, deficient, completely destitute in the knowledge of the scriptures, spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, no understanding of how this God thing is supposed to work. Yet the kingdom of God was suddenly being made available to them all. Now, this should not have come as a surprise to the 12 apostles because they were that way too until Jesus invited them to follow him. To this very day, probably in this very room, we have many who seem to be spiritual misfits all around us. 
No spiritual qualifications or abilities at all. You'd never call on them to finish a phrase in Sunday school. They don't know their Bible. Maybe don't even own one. Wouldn't ask them to lead a prayer. Yet all those in this great mangled mass of humanity were able to say and see, Jesus, touch me. And now I am changed. How many of us can say that about our spiritual relationship with Jesus? I know I can. But how often do we speak about that to others? How long has it been since you told someone outside your little circle of church friends, your faith family, about the incredible way that Jesus has changed, is changing your life. The world's kind of anti-Christian and it's easier to just not say anything, isn't it? I'm going to ask you to look around and focus on an empty seat or two. We have quite a few. They should be filled. Not with people who already have a church that they go to, that they're involved in. Not with people who think they're good with God but with those who we may look at as spiritual misfits. Those who don't know the Lord or ran away from the church for one reason or another years ago and never looked back. That was me for 20 years of my life. Those who would benefit from Jesus blessing them in their spiritual poverty. Now, we can't do this in any way, shape, or form in looking down on them, but we do it in loving them and in just simply saying, Hey, would you think about coming to church with me next week? Because Jesus loves us. He does not need a good reason to bless us. He doesn't bless us because we are poor in spirit, but in spite of it, when we come to him for healing from our sinful nature. Yet still today, many stay away because they don't feel worthy of God. Ah, I could, I could never be forgiven. You don't know the things I've done. There's no worthy state of mind in us that makes us eligible for his blessings. They are a free gift. Jesus blesses us anyway when we come to him, poor in spirit, to be endlessly, eternally enriched with his kindness, his mercy, and his grace. Simply because he has opened the gates to the kingdom of heaven to all believers. Not to all, but to all who believe in him as Lord and Savior. Any who know in their hearts that Jesus is God's Son, the Savior, the Messiah, and spend their life learning, living, and obeying his words will be blessed. It's not a lottery. Everybody who invites him in wins. He forgives us when we ask. He begins changing us the moment we allow. He transforms us through our trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Jesus blesses us in spite of our personal failures caused by our own spiritual poverty. So when we look at others and see their spiritual poverty, remember to look at ourselves and recognize ours. 
The next beatitude has to do with our attitude towards sin. Verse 4, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus wants us to see sin the same way God sees it. He hates it. Sin breaks his heart. Jesus wants us to mourn over our sins the way he does. Our main concern must always be the sin within, the sins we carry around in ourselves, the habits and ongoing behaviors that we know are wrong, but we keep doing them. We, we use the term secret sins to describe things we do or say that no one else knows about, but that's an oxymoron because God knows all, sees all. Nothing we do or think or say is hidden from him in any way. And let's be honest, our sins are much, much more common than any of us ever want to recognize or admit, and we try to cover them up or justify them. That's the wrong attitude, and Scripture teaches that when we do that, we actually grieve the Holy Spirit. You ever stop and think about the fact that when we sin, we are hurting God's heart? Especially when we repeat the sin again and again and again because we know what Jesus is just going to forgive us. So we twist this in our minds into thinking it's not really that big of a deal to sin just once again. God's going to forgive me. But it's important to understand the only kind of mourning over our personal sin that God accepts is the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. When we turn away from our sinful ways, and turn back to living out the words in red that Jesus said. Somehow, we're always very quick to spot and condemn the sins in others, especially other groups that, that disagree with us socially, politically. College basketball teams. <laughs> we are to mourn over the sins of the world, hating the sin but committed to loving the sinner. And we should strive to actively share the burden of the world's hurt and sin with Jesus. We need to talk to him about it, to pray to him. It should break our heart to see all the people living in tents along the roads and underpasses in every nook and cranny of Albuquerque. There should be deep grief at what is happening between Russia and Ukraine over China literally bulldozing church buildings and shutting off all internet connections for faith-based groups. We should deeply mourn the state of the church at large worldwide. But please note that while we are to do that, to be hurting, to be praying, to be aware of those situations and conditions, Jesus told us again and again not to worry about them. We are not to be afraid. We are to pray and to trust that our Lord and Savior will soon make things right in His sight. As in being poor, there's no rule or requirement that we must always be mournful. God doesn't want us to hurt. He doesn't require us to constantly be mournful to get into the gates of heaven. 
It doesn't say that anywhere. He knows what that feels like. And we'll go over that next week and the week after as we head into Palm Sunday and Easter. God wants us to enjoy this life, to live it and enjoy it abundantly. Truly knowing Jesus is the definition of joy. So we are called to deal with our own sin that hides within, to grieve over the world, and then to go out and do what I call mine for the joy that our Lord has sprinkled in our days. It's not always right there on the surface. Sometimes we have to dig around. We have to brush things off. We have to look in the drawer under all the junk in our lives to find the joy. I found mine yesterday just sitting in the window with a cup of coffee, listening to a sermon, and recognizing what a beautiful gift it was to have the freedom and the ability to do that. Find it. Show it. Share it. Mind that joy. Faithful followers must always remember that sins are not always things we do. We often sin through our inaction, our neglect to do things we know we should, even things we're commanded to do. That should cause us to grieve. We neglect to pray. We neglect to go out of our way to care, to share. We don't always give as we're called to. We turn our, way, our eyes away from obvious needs of others. We ignore the Holy Spirit calling us to serve in a particular ministry that's been on our minds or that's been placed in front of us again and again for some strange reason. Must be coincidence. No, I don't believe in coincidence. We are ignoring God's call in our lives when we do that. We ignore the Holy Spirit giving us the opportunity to serve Him. We make excuses. We procrastinate. We put it off endlessly. I'll do that when I retire. Going to church every week is another good example. Attendance worldwide is way down since the start of COVID. A lot of people are falling away from our Christian faith. Evidently, uh, many stayed home for a few months and then decided they'd, they'd rather do something else with their time on Sunday morning. Now, to those of you who are watching online, I am not referring to those of you with serious medical conditions or special concerns. We love you and we care for you and we went to great expense and trouble and headache like you wouldn't believe to technically provide this service. And we're so glad that you can be part of our family. Those who are involved in the church don't escape the inactive sin problem because we're not always sharing the good news of Jesus with others the way we're called to do, as I just mentioned. And again, I ask you to pick out a seat or two and then to pray about what you, who you might bring in the next few weeks. Let's fill these seats, you know, for some reason. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit. Easter is a season when many hearts are softened and many will consider coming to church for the first time or for the first time in a long time they've run away maybe they were hurt maybe they just got misled there's there's a thousand different reasons but we need to offer to meet them at the door to sit with them to make them comfortable coming in and to let them know there's no pressure we're not going to ask you to sign anything the first time a lady invited me to church i sat in the very back row with my arms folded ready to bolt out the door if anybody bugged me so i get that and i want to be gentle and kind and careful but invite them 
I'm serious. Pick out a seat and pray for it. A lot of us have been caught up in our own personal problems since the start of COVID. I see so much grief and mourning through so many of you and in my own family too. We've lost jobs and businesses. A lot of people have lost their individual drive to work hard and support themselves to help others. We've lost friends and family, COVID, cancer, heart attacks, divorce, depression, death, death, death. And one very important thing Scripture teaches is that it's okay to mourn. When I deal with those who suffer great loss, I always make it a point to let them know that grief is not only healthy, it's necessary, and it's biblical. I remind them Jesus grieved openly numerous times. And next week on Palm Sunday, we'll look at why and how he mourned on one very important Passover. When we don't allow ourselves to grieve, we slow down or stop the process of healing and recovery. Yet it's important to grieve in the right way, to give our pain to Jesus, to allow him to carry the heavy load. Scripture teaches us we don't grieve in the same way as those who don't know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Along with the things that so many of us have endured the past two years, recent developments over the past couple months here at New Covenant have broken our hearts. Pastor Dave resigning last week is hard for us. We love him so much, and we know he loves us. But it's, it, it, it's hard to deal with. But if we are to be truly faithful Christians, we must take Jesus Christ at his word. So excuse me for repeating again. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And as incredibly sad as I am about this, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving in. There is no way we at NCC are going to allow Satan to win. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, I'm leaving you with the gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I am going away but I will come back to you again. And he did. And he will. In John 12, he said, If you trust me, you are not trusting only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Are you with me? Jesus said it. I believe it. Will you repeat that with me? I say, Jesus said it. You say, I believe it. Jesus said it. I believe it. We're going to go over this again and again in the weeks to come because Jesus said, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus said it. I believe it. Amen. The Beatitudes were explanations and illustrations 
drawn from the immediate setting of the people who were present, who were there that day, of the availability of the kingdom through personal relationship with Jesus. It's the same offer for those of us sitting in this room today. We have a lot to mourn over, but we have so much to be joyous about. We have this beautiful building. We have these beautiful hearts. Hundreds and hundreds of people, many who weren't able to be here with us today, who serve, who give, who care, who pray, who reach out when someone is hurting. I've seen it in this fellowship again and again, and I am so blessed to be part of this family. And we are too. Jesus promises we will be blessed in Him. The rule of God from the heavens truly is available in and through our difficult life circumstances. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.